The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 10 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC10. This is Secret Church 10, episode 8. Once you become a Christian, can you know for sure that you will always be a Christian? Two realities we need to understand. One, superficial faith is always possible. That's where I'm just kind of taking us back to where we started tonight. That it's possible to profess publicly what we don't possess personally. That there are people, the Bible even warns of teachers in the church who are not true followers of Christ. Okay, so superficial faith is possible. There's examples there. Saving faith, on the other hand, always perseveres. And by saving faith, what I'm referring to is the kind of faith we've been talking about tonight. You've been born again. You're born again forever. Your faith will persevere. If you've really been born again, you'll be born again forever. It's what 1 John 2, 18-25, 1 John is written in a context where there had been some false teachers and they had left the church and had gone out from among them. And what John says is clearly they were never actually of us. They claimed to be of us, but they were not followers of Christ. That's the first part of that text right there. And then he goes on to encourage them that that they can know they have eternal life. And it kind of begs the question, well, how do I know if I'm really in Christ, if I've been born again? And this is the reality I want, to, want us to drive, I want to drive us as we walk through this doctrine. When saved, always saved. So not, trying to be careful not, not to just put it all on, okay, once saved, always saved. Is somehow, sometimes how this is phrased and people say well i prayed the prayer and so then i'm good i did this and then i'm good well just when you've been born again you know you you're always going to be alive to god in christ that's what i mean by when saved always saved so here's the truth we need to see this is the doctrine everyone who has been born again will persevere to the end by the power of god's preservation so there's two key words here preservation perseverance god will preserve us we will persevere Here's how we know that. Preservation is guaranteed by the Father. He will not forsake his saints. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Listen to the appeals to God's character all throughout Scripture as a foundation for confidence in his preservation of our salvation. God will preserve us according to his perfect knowledge. The Lord knows those who are his. According to his constant faithfulness, I will not turn away from doing good to them. God is faithful. The Lord is faithful. According to his righteous judgment, Justice, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. According to his limitless power. This is a great text right here. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept, it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. The word literally means protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. According to ever, his everlasting love, your steadfast, O love, Lord, love, O Lord, endures forever. Preservation, guaranteed by the Father. Second, it's insured in the Son. Christ says, I will lose none that the Father has given to me, not one. No one can snatch them out of my hand. You believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. In Christ, we have eternal salvation, we have eternal redemption, we have an eternal inheritance. We have eternal glory. That's, that's strong, strong text to remind us that in Christ we're, we're safe. 
Preservation, guaranteed by the Father, ensured in the Son, and preservation is accomplished through the Spirit. What's, what's really cool is you look in the New Testament and you see different metaphors that describe how the Spirit preserves our salvation. You see a family me- metaphor that the Spirit testifies that we're the children of God. You see the fi- a financial metaphor. The Spirit is literally a down payment of our salvation. Kind of an insta- first installment, a guarantee of what's to come. Agricultural metaphor, the Spirit is the first fruits of our salvation. The crop that starts the harvest, but guarantees there's more to come. There's more to come. The legal metaphor, the Spirit is a seal of our salvation. Basically, a, a judicial marking that marks our inheritance in Christ. Incredible promises there. So, so it's clear, based on what Scripture's teaching here, Father, Son, Spirit, Christians will persevere to the end. Guaranteed. Born again means born again forever. But there's another way that Scripture talks about this doctrine, not just as a promise, but as an exhortation. Yes, Christians will persevere to the end, and Christians must persevere to the end. So nowhere in Scripture is this doctrine of preservation perseverance used to encourage people just to sit back and coast out your Christian life because you're, you got it sealed for the day to come. You never see the Christian life described as rolling down a nice smooth hill with the wind blowing through your hair. It's not Christianity. Christianity is a fight to be fought, a race to be run. Those are the kind of pictures we see. And that's, that's where we, we find Jesus saying these words, like well, Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Listen to this warning in Romans 11. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. We're going to talk about that in a second. The whole picture, look at middle of the way through Colossians 1, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. We've come to share in Christ, Hebrews 3, 14, if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. You have need of endurance. So you receive what's been promised. 2 Peter 1, 5-11, another great text. So that brings us then to the questions we need to ask. Two questions, two very different questions. First question, how do I become a Christian? And hopefully, based on what we've seen tonight, you know the answer to that question. Turn from your sin and yourself. Trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's clear. That's one question. The second question is, how do I know I'm a Christian? And that is a very different question with a very different answer. This is so key because how we're going to look at how the Bible answers this question, we need to make sure we don't equate it with answering the first question. Because the Bible answers these two questions different. How do I become a Christian? Turn from yourself, sin, trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, period. How do you know I'm a Christian? Well, there's all kinds of false foundations of assurance around us. A moral lifestyle, because you're a good person, that's not how you know you're a Christian. Intellectual knowledge, because you know about Christ or you know theology, that's not foundation of assurance. Religious activity, not a foundation of assurance. All kinds of, I talked about, Galatians 2 talks about false brothers in the church. Religious ministry, I'm in ministry. Should give me some assurance? No. Judas would be a one example. Well, that's, that's sufficient, isn't it? And you got two others there. A guilty conscience. Well, I feel bad when I sin. Well, a lot of people feel bad when they do something wrong. Positive thinking. Well, I think I'm a Christian. 
If that was the foundation, then nobody could be deceived. Just because you think you're a Christian doesn't mean you have assurance that you're a Christian. A past decision? People say, I, I know I'm a Christian because I remember when I signed that card. Big deal. You don't see that in 1 John. Have you signed the card? Okay, then you're, you're good. There's a lot of people who have prayed prayers, gone forward, signed cards, gone into prayer rooms, been baptized, joined churches who have never had saving faith. True foundations of assurance. And this is what the book of 1 John is all about. Now remember, we're not talking about what we need to do in order to be saved. Different question. How do you know salvation is sure? Foundations of assurance. One, the present truth of Christ in your life. Are you believing in Christ alone for your salvation? Are you believing in Christ? Not Christ plus Good works, Christ plus anything else, Christ alone for your salvation. You look at all these scriptures, and the reality is, if you are denying Christ, then, then you don't have much assurance of, a salva- of salvation if you are denying Christ in your life. Are you abiding in Christ alone as your salvation? Abide in me and I in you, John 15 says. And you get down to 1 John 4, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Are you living in him? You don't need to be looking to a past decision you can't even remember. Look to, are you united with Christ? Are you walk with Christ now? This is assurance. Christ living in you, you living in him. The present work of Christ in your life. Are you obeying what Christ says? Very simple, what 1 John teaches is if you're a child of God, you live like God. If you're a child of the devil, you live like the devil. You're living like the devil. It's not a very good foundation for assurance. That's what all these texts from 1 John are about. Now that doesn't mean you're perfect, not holy perfection. We talked about that. Sanctification, not complete in this life. Not holy perfection, instead holy direction. You're growing in Christ. And as you're growing in Christ, Christ's working in your life. This is, oh, this is good assurance. Are you obeying what Christ says? Are you loving like Christ loves? You see pictures all throughout it. How can the love of God be in you if you're not loving your brother? Foundations of assurance. Christ's truth in your life. Christ's work in your life. And then the present Spirit of Christ in your life. The Spirit of God in us is given to us for our assurance. Assurance of salvation is a gift that comes from the Spirit and fellowship with the Spirit. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's the whole point. So do you listen to the Spirit of God in His Word? If you're, if you're not walking in this Word, listen to the Spirit. You don't, you don't have strong foundations for assurance. Are you led by the Spirit of God in your walk? Whoever keeps, are you led by the Spirit of God in your walk? Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Here's the deal. If you are living your life in disobedience to the Spirit of God, ignoring the Spirit of God, wanting nothing to do with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is given to us for our assurance, then how can you expect to experience assurance? You're ignoring the one who gives it. That's why Puritan Thomas Brooks, he said, if you grieve by your willful sinning the only one who can gladden you, then who will make you glad? So, so, 1 John is pointing us to believing in the truth of Christ, walking in the words of Christ, with the Spirit of Christ. And as we're doing these things, now now remember, not the first question. It's not doing these things in order to be saved. 
But it's in doing these things, walking with Christ, living out the Christian life, sanctification, that foundations for assurance arise. And you say, well, if I'm not doing those things, does that mean I'm not saved? Well, here's the deal. That's where we realize, follow this, the warnings we need to hear. Throughout Scripture, God gives warnings to Christians about falling away. 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 3 and 6 are the two of the most controversial passages about that. And we obviously don't have time to solve those, so to speak, tonight. But what I want you to see is, this is so key, that God uses warnings to Christians to keep them from falling away. People debate, when when Scripture says, if you do this, you may fall away, or if you don't endure, you won't won't be saved. Like, is this saying that you can lose your salvation? It's not. We've seen God's preservation, His promise of preservation. At the same time, what I want us to see is that God gives us good, real, authentic warnings not to fall away, and He gives us those to keep us from falling away. I put an example here that's an illustration. Acts 27. We're going to read it real quick. But I put it here as an illustration. I'm not saying Acts 27 is teaching this doctrine. Okay? But I want you to see an illustration of how a warning and a promise go together. Okay? Follow with me. This is Paul on a boat in a storm. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And that was where they were headed. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So God had said to him, you and all the other guys in the ship are going to be fine. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. There will be exactly as I have been told. So there's the promise. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So he's, telling, he's giving them a warning. Keep these guys in the ship. The soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Here's the promise again. Just tell them, take food. When he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged, ate some food themselves. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned if possible to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship and so it all was that all were brought safely to the land all right paul receives a promise you're all going to live that's a promise guaranteed in the process these guys are starting to jump ship and he says don't jump ship i'm warning you 
If you jump ship, you're not going to be saved. Now, he already knew they were all going to be saved. But the warning was the means by which they got to the promise on land, everybody saved. Does that make sense? So you've got a promise. So again, this not, I'm not saying this is what this text is teaching. I'm saying this is an illustration to help, help us envision. God has promised preservation of all who have been born again, all who are His. He knows those who are His. He will preserve. At the same time, you and I are prone to wander. And so God, all throughout Scripture, gives us very gracious and stern warnings and says, don't do that or you won't make it. Now, it's not that the promise has failed, but the warnings are the means by which the promise is accomplished. Make sense? And, and so, here's the actions we need to take from this. We need to, one, number one, beware of spiritual deception. Beware of spiritual deception. Superficial faith is possible. So, examine yourselves. Even, even if you leave tonight unsure of where you stand before God, this is worth spending long hours with God over. Beware of spiritual deception. Don't walk in spiritual deception. Be warned concerning spiritual inaction. If you have been wandering in your relationship with God, with Christ, be warned tonight. Stop wandering and wavering. Be warned. And then be working and waiting with spiritual anticipation. Fight this good fight of faith. Finish this race. Persevere, especially our brothers and sisters in persecution and suffering. Persevere in persecution and suffering. Second Thessalonians 1.4 Even in the face of death, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9-11, through 11, the Lord will bring you to eternal life by His grace. He will bring you there. Oh, Augustine said, Lord, those who are bowed down with burdens, you lift up, and they do not fall because you are their support. The Lord will bring you to eternal life by His grace, and the Lord will bring you to eternal life for His glory. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That leads us perfectly into the doctrine of glorification. When God will resurrect our bodies. This is the completion of salvation. You've seen from from sinfulness and our status, alienation from God, we will be with Him. Resurrected bodies. This is Old Testament hope. Job, Psalms, Hebrews 11, a picture of Old Testament saints looking forward which i got a little side thing here because i I thought i bet the question will be there um but how did old testament believers experience salvation these people in old testament how did they experience well again we fly through this but our commonality with old testament believers here's the deal we're all saved by grace alone through faith alone and christ alone from the spirit alone our differences follow this we're all saved by grace alone yes through faith alone so we're saved through faith alone old testament faith looking forward to a coming Messiah, not, not saying they even recognized all the, all the ramifications of what they meant. They were looking forward. They, were, they had a faith and a promise in the future. New Testament, faith looking backward. Looking back to what Christ did. In Christ alone, Old Testament, anticipated Messiah. New Testament, an ascended Messiah. We're saved, all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, from the Spirit alone. Now, in the Old Testament, you do see an incomplete experience of the Spirit. That's why you see these new covenant promises. The Spirit will dwell in you. Ascended Messiah, the New Testament. Old Testament, incomplete experience of the Spirit. New Testament, an indwelling experience of the Spirit. But we're still united together by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, by His Spirit. 
New Testament promises of glorification. So Old Testament hope, New Testament promise. Christians will be completely redeemed. We will be completely redeemed. Redemption of our bodies. There is coming a day when we will be free from the presence of sin. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be conformed into the likeness of Christ. And we will be welcomed into an everlasting kingdom. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Christians will be completely redeemed and creation will be completely restored. All creation restored. New heaven. New earth. So what does this mean? Realization of glorification. Okay, uh, John 5, John 6, Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. Ha! You got dual citizenship. You got a passport. Your name on it. Heaven. Where we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. This is the doctrine of glorification. In the final stage of salvation, Christ will return for His people and resurrect their bodies to reign forever with Him. What that means? Four phases of glorification. One, most believers will die. Most believers will die. Not all believers will die. First Corinthians 15. We shall not all sleep. Jesus is coming back. Some believers are going to see it from the earth. Those believers who do die, their bodies are buried in the earth and their souls are welcomed in heaven. Away from the body, at home with the Lord. Today you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Stephen was in stone. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, for believers who die on this earth, death is not the end. Death is just the beginning. So, most believers will die. Second phase, all believers will be resurrected. There's coming a day when God's people on earth, those in heaven, will receive a resurrected body. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. We don't have time to read that whole passage. It's talking about how our bodies will be raised up with His because of the resurrection of Christ. Our bodies will be eternal They'll be imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Not susceptible to corruption. They'll reflect the image of Christ. Eternal, our bodies will be beautiful. <laughs> Raised in glory and honor. I'm not talking vanity fair-like. I'm talking real beauty. Shining like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Our bodies will be powerful. I'm not talking Superman here. I'm talking, talking we, we will not have weakness Susceptible to disease and sickness and pain. I'm talking to a brother in our church who went to visit the other day in the hospital and body weak and frail. He, that brother, and every one of us have new body coming. It's not weak and it's not frail. Our bodies will be spiritual, meaning permanently spirit-filled. don't mean non-physical by that. Jesus' resurrection body was physical, filled with the Spirit of God. And our bodies will be recognizable. There's a lot unknown here in Scripture when we see glimpses of heaven. But we don't, we don't see anything that would indicate that gender, ethnic characteristics would, would be totally gone. But, but obviously no pride, vain delight in what we look like or don't look like. Our bodies will be recognizable. And so our bodies will be resurrected. All believers will be justified. Meaning... And what I mean is, not that we haven't already, but the judgment 
Justification pronounced by God here on earth will be pronounced in glory. We'll stand before the Father. On that day, stand before the Father. Same thing we've already talked about. On that day, entrance into heaven. On what basis? Christ, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I believe in Him. I trust in Him. And in the background, in the background, works that show, yes, absolutely, faith. Works evidence of justification. All believers will enter into heaven where we have citizenship. We'll enter into heaven a place of unhindered fellowship where God will dwell with us. Wipe every tear from our eyes. Death no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Former things have passed away. We will be with Him. Death will be replaced by life. No more sin, no more sorrow. God is personally pictured as wiping away the tears from our eyes. No more sickness, no more cancer. No more AIDS. No more hunger or starvation. No more tragedy. No unexpected tragedy. No more separation. Death will be replaced by life. Night will be replaced by light. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. Corruption will be replaced by purity. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Curse will be replaced by blessing. No longer will there be anything accursed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship Him. Revelation 22, verse 4, five of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. They will see His face. We're going to see His face. Unhindered fellowship. A place of indescribable worship. Just picture it. Voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters. Like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And this bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, righteous deeds of the saints. The grace of Christ. These are the true words of God. That's what we long for. Salvation, full and free and complete. And it's all for His glory. So all this picture, our glorification, ultimately resounding to His glory. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.